Hi, I'm Nicola Jennings, one of the co-founders of Athena Art Foundation. This is Athena Asks, a podcast where we talk to artists, curators, historians and collectors about their work, pre-modern art and the world today. My guest today is Dr. Madeleine Haddon. Madeleine is a curator and art historian who's recently been working on several exciting projects, including an upcoming exhibition about Matisse at MoMA in New York, as well as writing essays for the catalogues of forthcoming exhibitions on Murillo at the Kimball Art Museum in Fort Worth, Texas, and Betty Saar at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. Madeleine is also the manager of the Center for Curatorial Leadership and Studio Museum in Harlem's Curators Forum, and she's worked as a curator at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Frick Collection, and several others. Her most recent project has been curating an exhibition on until the 17th of April at the Hispanic Society Museum and Library in New York, Nuestra Casa, Rediscovering the Treasures of the Hispanic Society Museum and Library. And it's this exhibition that we're going to talk about today. So Madeline, welcome. Tell me a little bit about the Hispanic Society and Museum. First, thank you so much for the invitation to be here today. I'm a really big fan of all that Athena is doing, so it's an honor to be asked to be on the podcast. The Hispanic Society has been around since 1904. It was founded by Archer Milton Huntington with the goal of creating a museum where people could come to experience art of the Hispanic world. And for Huntington, that originally really meant art from Spain, but eventually expanded to include art from Latin America as well. And the institution has been closed since 2017 for a renovation. And a selection of the artworks have been touring the world since then. Some people might have seen them at the Prado in 2017. There was a fantastic exhibition of the Hispanic Society's treasures. They've most recently been at the Museum and Fine Arts in Houston. The first gallery space that has opened is known as the East Gallery, and it's a really contemporary exhibition space, very different from the traditional Hispanic society space that you see here, but one in which it's kind of exciting place to show historic works of art within a new context. And so my exhibition, Nuestra Casa, Rediscovering the Treasure of the Hispanic Society, is an opportunity for people to see the, the treasures of the museum for the first time since 2017 and for the only time until 2023, as the works in the collection are going to be continuing on tour. And they'll be going to the Art Gallery of Ontario after my show and actually will be coming to London, to the Royal Academy. Academy, but kind of the homecoming of the works in the exhibition in having these works on view in the museum for the first time in five years, it was important to me to reconsider works in the collection that have been historically defined as its masterpieces in a moment when it's so important for art history to be thinking about how to fully incorporate the diverse populations to whom our public institutions belong and exhibitions that are really questioning that and really embodying that mission within the works of art that they're showing as well. So the specific title of Nuestra Casa or Our House in Spanish was really important to me because the exhibition is not only a homecoming of the works, but also a homecoming for visitors who have always loved the Hispanic Society but have not been able to see their favorite works there over the past five years. And then, you know, a chance to reintroduce the Hispanic Society as a home for those in New York City that they didn't know was there for them in the past and a particularly critical role that this museum plays within its local neighborhood of Washington Heights. 
So Washington Heights, for those who don't know, New York is a very diverse neighborhood. Yes. And is the museum doing outreach work, getting people from the community into the exhibition? How's that That's working? always been a key part of the Hispanic Society's mission. It's, it's kind of incredible. Huntington chose this location for the museum in 1904. He had no idea that in planting a museum of Hispanic art in a neighborhood that would become one of the largest Latinx populations within New York City. It's, you know, an incredible serendipity. That's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> yeah, because in 1904, presumably, this was just another part of New York, which was populated by people like Huntington. Mostly pretty uninhabited part of New York. You see old pictures of the museum. There's barren farmlands around it. And it was at that point the last stop on the number one train, which was the first subway in New York. So really the ends of, of the city. The museum has always seen itself as playing a really critical role within the local community as being one of the few historic museums within the area. And it's free to the public so anyone can walk in. And I really want to take advantage of that when the title of this is our home, this is your home, Nuestra Casa. And the idea that you should walk into the exhibition in the museum, you know, for an hour on your lunch break or for 30 minutes and then come back again and again and again. This is kind of like your living room, your space. The Latinx population is rapidly becoming a majority yes. population in some parts of the states, right? In New York City particularly, and so in displaying art of the Hispanic world, it's not just important and critical to only the Latinx community. This is critical to the identity of America as it's continuing to grow. And understanding the diverse and complex history of the Hispanic world is intertwined with the identity of the United States. The Bienvenida to the exhibition, or you're welcome into the exhibition, is a pairing of two paintings. Jose Agustin Arieta is the young man from the coast, and Diego Velasquez is portrait of a little girl. It was important for me to begin with these two works, not only because they're two of my favorite portraits in the collection, but they're a pairing of two works that you might not necessarily expect to see when you're entering the Hispanic society. People have previously known the collection in the past for its works by Velazquez, by Goya, by Soroya in particular, but not really for the very large Latin American collection that is in the museum that's been built upon particularly within the past three decades or so. The first work that you see when you walk into the exhibition is actually the Arrieta portrait, and it was important for me to include a portrait of a person of color as being the first work you see in the exhibition because, again, it's disappointing. It's not really what people are thinking they're going to see when they walk into a building like this. And the idea that there's practically nowhere else in the world where you would get to see two works side by side like this and showing you the really range and depth of the collection and what it means to represent the Hispanic world is very complex. It's not just Arrieta and it's not just Velasquez, but it's both of them in conversation with one another. And the El Costeño painting, the young man from the coast, we believe he's most likely from Veracruz, which was a city on the Mexican coast that's closest to the Caribbean. That was the first port of entry for slaves coming from Western Africa into Mexico. And his presence is really a testament to the large African and Afro-Mexican population that existed within Mexico in the 19th century and how that's really disseminated into the modern day population of Mexico and that most Mexicans now are descendants of the large population of African slaves that were um, imported to Mexico. As many slaves were imported to Mexico during the slave trade as there were imported to the United States, which is not something that many people know. I mean, a history that we were able to recover with an incredible portrait like Arietta's Young Man from the Coast. 
It's such a beautiful portrait Such as well. a noble protagonist. And although we don't know the name of this sitter, I really feel like you can imagine conversation that him and Arietta would have had with one another. It's clearly meant to be a portrait. A number of the works in the exhibition play with kind of the boundaries between portrait and type, which is something that I've been very interested in in my research as well. And in many sitters, particularly sitters of color, who were treated like types, but really the representations of them are portraits and how we can try to recover that history as much as possible. Do we know anything about Arietta himself? What was his background? He was from Mexico, a really successful painter within the 19th century, a master of really all genres, religious painting, portraiture, and still life. And this work is such an incredible example of his because he's particularly well known for his portraitures and his still life. We see this incredible basket of tropical fruit that was indigenous to the region. And that's a very signature topic of Arietas, the fruit and cuisine that was indigenous to Mexico that he painted with such delectable colors. Yes, it's wonderful. Velasquez's portrait is also of an unknown sitter. This is a work that survived in his studio after he died, but we don't know who it's a depiction of. We believe maybe it was of one of his granddaughters, but there's not exactly a granddaughter who matches to the age. It's one of only two portraits that he did of children who were not part of the royal family. So maybe one of his few non-traditional commissions, but this is just a young girl who he cared about and had a relationship with. How do we with. know that it's not a member of the royal family? Is it the costume or is it that her name would have been recorded in some way? If it was, her name certainly would have been recorded. This was recorded in the inventory of Velasquez's work after he died. It's possible that it was done as a study for an official commission. But again, it's unfinished. Velasquez did use family members and, you know, household servants often, or even enslaved people within his household to, to model for him. Yes. What I wanted to say about the Arietta is I'm so excited that it's coming to London because we know so little about what's coming out of Mexico. There's very, very little Hispanic art. I mean, obviously we know Velasquez, we know Spanish art, but in terms of what comes from the other side of the Atlantic, we know very little apart from the pre-Columbian works that you might see in the British Museum or somewhere like that. But actually what goes on in between the 10th century and the 20th century, or even the 21st century, there is so little in Europe. Yes, it's very exciting in that sense, and there'll be a lot more works like the Arietta. The majority of the Latin American works in the Hispanic Studies collection range from the 16th century through to the early 20th century. And even in my smaller selection of the larger exhibition that's coming, there are works from Ecuador, Mexico, modern-day Bolivia, and all different types of genres. It'll be a really exciting thing to have in London. So tell me about the next room a little bit. So this is actually uh, the first room. The exhibition is really divided into two halves. First half of it focuses on artwork from Spain, and then the second half focuses on artwork from Latin America. The works of art in this portion of the exhibition, the majority of them were acquired by Huntington, so they have been in the collection for, in many cases, a hundred years, if not more than that. It really takes you through a dazzling tour through the history of Spanish art. The oldest work in the exhibition is from 966 this beautiful box known as Apixis, which is from Cordoba during the time when Spain was under Muslim rule and is really one of the most spectacular works of art that survives from that period. And Apixis is a small box that held incense or perfume and it's carved out of ivory and you really see these beautiful decorative motifs on the outside that have symbols of fertility and prosperity. Only six of these have been preserved and the artist's signature is on the back. It's rare where we can actually attribute a work from this time period to a particular artist. And you can see the shape of the elephant's tusk, can't you? They were using that rounded yes. shape. 
in, and they would hollow out the middle, the dentine and the... Certainly. Yes. And there's even an, an inscription you'll see on the top of the lid. When the Christians took back the Iberian Peninsula, they kept these works and they were treasures that would belong to a cathedral or a monastery. And they held reliquaries on altars because they were just seen as such beautiful works of art. This is, again, a work that was acquired by Huntington. So it's been in the museum's collection for about a century. Yeah, it's really beautiful, really special object. And this is the portrait of the Duchess of Alba by Goya. Say the best known painting in the Hispanic Society's collection. And again, it's a work that was acquired by Huntington. So it's been on 155th Street for about 100 years now. And it's a work that many people would think is in Spain or is at the Prado. Many New Yorkers and Americans don't realize this is one of Goya's masterpieces, if not his best portrait that they can just come and see in Washington Heights. And I wanted to hang it particularly low and as close to the visitor as possible because there are incredible details within the portrait that you have a chance to see for the first time when, you know, her pointing to the ground, the solo Goya, only Goya that's written in the ground and all this innuendo within the painting, you know, the intrigues about if the Duchess of Alba and Goya were involved in a romantic relationship. A lot of that originates from, She's from an this amazing, work in particular. She's um, an amazing figure. She almost makes you think of Kim Kardashian. She's such a presence. She's so confident. It's me and I'm here and look at me particularly in this portrait. I mean, I love the comparison to Kim Kardashian because she's so daring in how she's presenting herself with the pointing to Solo Goya, you know, that it seems like she's etched in the ground so staunchly and on the same hand wearing the rings with Alba and Goya. She was a muse for him in addition to being friend and a great patron. Next to the Duchess of Alba is a portrait by Mario Fortuny called Arabs Ascending a Hill. Fortuny was a painter who worked in the mid-19th century and first traveled to Morocco in 1860 as part of a commission that was sent by the government of Barcelona to cover the Spanish-Moroccan War. And he really developed a fascination with Morocco after that and would continue to travel there. And you see a line of actually captive soldiers with their hands tied behind their back being sent up a very very steep hill by a Moroccan soldier with a rifle. And it's a very specific and representational image that at the same time fades into abstraction, which is really a signature style of, of Fortunis, who died at a very young age. It's very um, tragic and is part of the reason that many people don't know his work. But this painting, you know, it's almost proto-impressionist in that respect. He's depicting a very specific scene. It's not one that we have any reason to believe actually happened. It's kind of an amalgamation of probably a couple different things that he observed in Morocco. But he's also kind of flirting the line between abstraction and, and figuration. I think he was very influenced by El Greco, am I right? El, in his colors, certainly, in, in kind of these bright yes. electric colors. And he also was very international. He worked in Paris and in Rome and was very influenced by a number of the other French and Italian artists of his moment. He is a wonderful, wonderful painter. Yeah, the Prado did a great and retrospective of his a couple of years ago. Would you like to talk about some of these? Yes. I'd love to talk about the pairing of Zuluaga and Soroya, his back wall in general of the exhibition that really focuses on early 20th century Spanish art. My background is really in early 20th century Spanish art, but I also wanted to focus on these artists in particular, like we see here, this Ignacio Zuluaga painting, the family of the bullfighter, and then a Soroya painting after the bath, because not many people know about Spanish art that happens between Goya and Picasso um, on the one hand, and on the other hand, that these artists were really would have been Huntington's contemporaries. And so it shows that he was really interested in art of the Hispanic world, not only being art of the past, but really being art of his contemporary moment. And it is a direction that the Hispanic society will continue to grow in. 
it's going to be a growing collection that'll show also 20th century and eventually contemporary works as well. So did he travel to yes. Spain? Huntington? Huntington traveled to Spain a number of times, but he had a very strict rule that he would never actually acquire any works from Spain. He didn't want to be part of a broader history of those who came from the United States, of Napoleon's invasion of Spain, and actually you no know, British um, pillaging of, of works of art from Spain. In the case of these works, in most cases, the early 20th century works, he acquired most of them directly from the artists themselves. And he held exhibitions of Spanish artists. So some of the earliest exhibitions to be at the Hispanic Society were retrospectives of Zuluaga and Soroya. The second half of the exhibition talks about art from Latin America that is in the collection. And as I mentioned before, since the 1990s, the Hispanic Society has really been expanding its Latin American collection, but actually Latin American art was always part of Huntington's vision for the museum. And he actually acquired some of the first Latin American artworks, and it's really part of its fundamental principles from its inception. Also, this part of the exhibition and the exhibition as a whole speaks to the um, museum recognition of really the intertwined histories politically and also art histories of Spain and Latin America. It's hard to talk about art from Spain without talking about art from Latin America and vice versa. This moment, which is talking about Potosí, is, is a moment to me that really encompasses a lot of the aims of the exhibition and kind of recognizing the works of art in this exhibition as kind of beautiful objects that should be appreciated for their artistry within their own right, but that many of them have dark and more violent histories that have not always been discussed when looking at these objects that really need to be recovered in our examination of them. On the left, we have a map of the silver mines in Potosí, the city that the Spanish founded when they discovered silver, and it's now what is in present-day Bolivia, and is the wealth that really funded the development of the Spanish Empire in Latin America and really put Latin America on the map as having a world presence. But the silver that was there could not have been mined without the indigenous and African slaves who were brought over to work in those mines. I mean, it's estimated that as many as 8 million of them died while the mines were active. And this is not something that is often discussed. And even in this map, you can see the workers in the foreground who perished by the hundreds each day just because of the conditions of the mine. Next to this map, you see this beautiful silver tray, which is an example of how the art that was able to be produced, not only from the wealth of the silver, but really through the backs and the deaths of so many people. A work like this would have been made in Alto Peru, but then sent back to Europe and really been an item of the highest luxury. But it really intertwines together both indigenous and European motifs. So start to see this blending of cultures that was happening in Latin America at the time, particularly through the artwork produced there. I think it's really interesting. These are the sorts of stories museums are beginning to tell and are going to have to tell much more. There was that amazing exhibition, which sadly I didn't see because it all happened during the COVID lockdowns, the slavery exhibition in Amsterdam. I, I, I unfortunately couldn't see it, but I really, really wanted to. But they were making exactly these kinds of comparisons between incredibly beautiful objects. There was one little box which had a tortoiseshell and gilt decoration on it, and it was a slave owner, and it was a story with a terrible background, and yet ended up in this incredibly beautiful object. And it raises all sorts of questions about art and the lives, as you say, the millions of lives that were lost. Because also the chemicals that were used and the processes that were that used too. to extract the silver were really toxic, weren't toxic they? Toxic and the actual conditions. Yeah. You know, there were two ways you could have gone. You either died in the mine or you died from the toll that it took on your body from working there. It's important to me to put all this information out for visitors. 
do with it what you like, but you need to hear both sides of the story when looking at objects like this. Absolutely. And I think that's what we can do now. And there's no reason why we shouldn't do it, because I think that's what people want. They just want to know what the real stories exactly. are, and then they can mm -hmm. draw their own conclusions. I wanted just very briefly to touch on some of the polychrome sculpture, because it's a subject I'm particularly interested in. I know the Hispanic did an exhibition yes. recently on Spanish polychrome sculpture, but this is Latin polychrome sculpture, isn't it? These pieces were made, was it in Ecuador? These were made in, these were made. This in Ecuador. They're by an artist named Caspicaro, who we don't know very much about. The rest of his production, or even who these works were made for, we believe they were made for someone's private devotional chapel. They're called the Four Fates of Man, and so they depict the four things that can happen to you after you die. They're quite gruesome, and they look like something that could have been made in the year 2022, you know, not in 1775. So first you see the skeletal body decomposing in the ground. And then if you are a terrible person, you are burning in hell. And it's so graphic. I don't think you would ever want to be a bad Christian if you were looking at these. And then the gaunt body rising from the flames in purgatory, begging to be let into heaven. And then this beautiful angelic body in a very elaborate robe who was already in heaven. And, and you know definitely which way you want to be going. <laughs> Yeah, I think they really speak, as you say, to our taste for rather yes. gruesome, extreme yeah. objects and for Spanish and Latin polychrome sculpture, because it is so hyper-realist and so disturbing. And they look so, particularly with the Caspicaras, they, they really just look like something that could have been made today. So this is an example of Casta painting that was done in the 18th century by a Mexican artist named Juan Rodriguez Juarez. Costa painting is a genre that depicted and classified racial mixtures that was particularly prevalent in 18th century Mexico. And so Costa paintings came in large series in which each racial mixture was shown in the guise of a married couple. Here we have a man who's labeled as a mestizo who's married to a woman of indigenous descent. You can see at the top actually, the mestizo e India produces a coyote. That's what the Spanish wanted to label the offspring of this particular racial mixture. And so classifying all the different racial mixtures that existed in the new world, creating racial and social hierarchies. So those who were of European, Spanish descent were at the top of the hierarchy. Those who were of African and indigenous descent were at the bottom of the hierarchy. And so maintaining a, a kind of authority and control within the new world was important to them by creating all these different classifications but also as a need to kind of understand what was happening in the new world with all of these racial mixtures that they had never seen before. And works like this were particularly painted and commissioned in order to be sent back to Europe to depict what was happening within the new world. There are lots of mm -hmm. sets of them that you see, for example, in the Museo de América yes. in Madrid. There are lots and lots of different mixtures that they classified. Some sets are smaller than others, but they claim to classify every single racial mixture that you can expect. So there's an impetus to understand or control what's unknown so it doesn't terrify or surprise you. You know, I wanted to include a Costa painting in the exhibition because there's not, in New York, and particularly in the United States, there's not many places that you can see them. And it's really incredible that the Hispanic Society owns one. But they're really a testament to how important painting was in the 18th and in the 19th century in terms of thinking about race and understanding ideas in the period that developed around what race meant and what race is that are ones that we've really inherited today. And understanding different racial types really could only be achieved through painting in some ways. You know, words could not really capture what color and paint could. And so the critical role that painting plays within the history of ideas of racial identity.
and continues mm-hmm. to play, right? I'm really fascinated by the way that African-American artists have been really at the forefront of the renewal of painting. People like Kahinda Wiley and Titus Kafar, they're really painting contemporary black identity on canvas. And, and shaping it. Um, it's become super and, and, you know, in the case yeah. of, if we think about them, maybe within the context of art history, you know, leaving on that legacy for future generations. Uh, we think of uh, Barclay Hendricks, for example, carrying on that tradition to me, that's the most fascinating thing about the history of art, about painting in particular, its capability to preserve and capture identity for future generations. Before photography, painting was really the only way to do that. But it's still the only way to do certain things, isn't it? Because with photography, you're sort of playing tricks, whereas with painting, you can True. do what you want. You can make up any painting, whereas with photography, you either know if it's a real thing or if it's not. But with a painting, you never quite know. Because it's the imagination, isn't it? Yes, it's truly the world of the artist. And as you said, I think it's fantastic that painting is, you know, figurative painting is having a renaissance. You know, one might think that painting would become obsolete in that sense, but absolutely not. It's becoming even more relevant than ever. And it's the same here in the UK. I mean, we have fantastic painters here as well, male and female, who are producing really interesting work on race and identity in the 21st centuries. Well, I think that's maybe a good place to end. Thank you very, very much. That was a really interesting tour. It's a wonderful exhibition that you've put together. I'm not sure I'm going to make it to the States before the 17th of April, but I will very much look forward to it when it comes to London. Thank you so much. No, thank you really so much for the invitation to speak today. And it was a pleasure to be in conversation about this.